As you can see, here we are in the office of an associate professor, watching them work. Work for an associate professor is an elaborate ritual where an item known as a keyboard is picked, causing ideas in the form of words to appear on what is called a screen. What? The associate professor has been spooked by something in their environment. This is possibly a predatory journal trying to get the associate professor to submit work to it for no real gain. Josh, Josh, is that you? Josh, or the Journal of Shit Hot Takes, is obviously nearby and seeking submissions. Josh, if you're spying on me to find out what this week's topic is, it's not working. The associate professor has been so spooked that they're closing their writing device down. But if we look very carefully, we might be able to see... God damn it, no, I can't see a thing. I've got a lot of questions, but the first is, how did you get to Juhai? Along with the follow-up, which is, how did you get into my office? You're ignoring the elephant in the room? I am? Yes, your first question, as in all situations, should be, why are you not wearing pants? The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Not much of an elephant in the room. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Addison in Auckland, New Zealand. They are Dr. M. Dentith in Zhuhai, China. And I don't know that we have a lot to say to you at the start of the episode this week. Do we have anything to say at the start of the episode this week? Only that last week we also had nothing to say and then spent five minutes not saying it. Mm. Shall we not not do that again, I would say? I'm not quite sure how the double negation is working there. So we should that was, spend that was, five minutes That was more of a starter than a double, non, d- double or, negation. Or but anyway. we shouldn't spend five minutes prevaricating. I'd if say so, that's not. How much time should we spend prevaricating? Uh, as much time as it takes to say this is another What the Conspiracy episode and this time you're going to be telling me about something I've never heard of? I'm telling you something about you've never heard of? I hope so. Good. And that's what I hope as well. Shall we move on? Yes. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Okay, so as Josh announced, this is a What the Conspiracy episode, and it's my turn to ask Josh what the conspiracy, which means I need to ask him what the conspiracy, when the conspiracy, and also where the conspiracy it's actually taken us this many episodes to realize that we can actually phrase that as we could yeah that was we should have been doing that from the beginning honestly goodness yeah so tell me first of all what the conspiracy okay what was your last one i've gone forgotten now it was the you've we've we've been all over the world really recently so i'm 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 struggling a little bit to narrow you down but i'm going to go with i think i'm going to go with the middle of the atlantic ocean because that is where mine was last time. So. I just asked what. But yeah, okay, we're the conspiracy in the oh, okay, middle fine. of the Atlantic Ocean. We're, we're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, um, the time last Tuesday, and the what, um, it's going to be about plankton. One of those, one of those plankton-based last... conspiracy theories that the, the, the message boards are aflame with. So last Tuesday's plankton-based conspiracy... I mean, there are so yes. many. I don't know where mm. I would start with last Tuesday's plankton-based conspiracy theories. But unfortunately, apart from the Atlantic, which might get you geographically somewhat close to where this conspiracy or alleged conspiracy is said to have occurred, you're basically wrong on all counts, and thus you should mm. hang your head in shame. Mm. So the where is the U.S., for the most part, there will be a few references to non-US locales, but it's mostly a US-based conspiracy theory. The when is all the way back in the distant, distant, dusty past of the 1980s. And the what? Well, it's a celebrity doppelganger conspiracy theory. Oh, I do like hey, a good celebrity doppelganger. Now, Josh, tell me about all the celebrity doppelganger or replacement conspiracy theories you know of. Oh, go in. Avril, Avril Lavigne was the, the the more recent one, was then, of course, Melania Trump. Um, Any time she appeared in public wearing sunglasses, people were like, "Oh my God, it's it's a it's a security double." Um, who else? We had the we, we've talked about the whole 
uh, celebrities also being other celebrities with the Alex Jones, Jeff Bridges, no, Bo Bridges. Uh, oh, the, he, he was the, that, and, the, and also the, the comedian, comedian Hicks, yeah, Bill Hicks. Yes, yes, yeah. There were those ones, and and I guess if you go all the way back to the Paul is dead Beatles conspiracy theories, he was replaced with some sort of a doppelganger as well. Michael Jackson must be in there somewhere, but I'm um, I'm I'm assuming you've got a different one for me. So we're not going to talk about the Bob Dylan replacement hypothesis, although there are claims that Bob Dylan died in a car crash and the modern-day Bob Dylan is, in fact, a pale replica of the classic Bob Oh, Elvis, obviously. Yeah, Elvis, of course, is famous. Shakira Mm. has also apparently been replaced numerous times during her career. You're telling me her hips are lying about being Shakira? Well, I mean, someone's hips are lying, but are they Shakira's hips Mm. or are they someone else's hips? Exactly. But no, I... so. Before we move on to this, Josh, I want you to give me the three song, uh, three top songs you know by Motley Crue. Motley Crue. Oh, God. I don't think I can name a single one. I'm sure if you told me some, I'd recognise them, but I'm not a Motley Crue person, I'm afraid. So if I asked you to give me the members of Motley Crue, past and present, I, I would, would be... be even more stumped, I'm sorry. Well, this is going, this is going, to, be, this is going to be interesting. You're going, you're going to get schooled a little about Motley Crue in this Jolly episode good. because... This is a celebrity doppelganger replacement claim about Nikki Six, the bassist, and right. presume, and and sometimes discussed as being kind of the leading force of Motley Crue. So Motley Crue is currently made up of, although I think they actually officially retired from touring in 2016, but they're still kind of a live act, and that they could they could reemerge from hibernation at any moment. The current membership of Motley Crue is Nikki Six. Mick Mars, Vince Neil, and Tommy Lee, with past members John. Oh, Tommy Lee is that his band? Okay, right. Yeah, Randy Costello and Samantha Maloney. Now, when people talk about the membership of Motley Crue, past and present, one person they don't talk about is this guy by the name of Matthew Tripp, and Matthew Tripp replaced Nikki Six for a year back in 1983. A fact which is not talked about by anyone in Motley Crue. So did you just say he replaced him for a year? Or replaced for a year. Him for a year, right. In 1983. Okay. So they had a... They, 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 oh, they, they did Dr. Feel... Sorry, I'm looking up their discography as we as we speak Do- as well. No, you, you look Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood. Oh, Dr. Yeah. Okay, that, that's one I've heard of. They did Shout at the Devil, okay. Yeah. Uh, Actually, I don't know many of these songs anyway. I always thought Tommy Lee was a bit of a cock. But um, okay, so Tommy is a bit of a cock, but mm, he doesn't really—he actually doesn't really feature much in the story at all. The okay. main characters we're going to hear about are Nikki Six, Mick Mars, and the two co-managers of Motley Crue at the time, which are Thaler and McGee. And McGee actually ends up being a really interesting character for rationales. We'll get to towards the end of this episode of what the conspiracy so the claim is that back in about 1982 1983 nikki six whose real name is frank farana was injured in a car accident and so trip was brought in due to his resemblance to nikki six to replace nikki six on tour for that year so the bank story goes something like this so matthew trip was a bit of a troubled child Uh, He was brought up in a strongly Catholic family. As an adopted child, he had a lot of issues with his parents because he wanted to know more about who his biological parents were. Uh, To annoy his parents, he bought a book on Satanism. He didn't just buy a book on Satanism, though. He then started forging checks by his father and started donating money to the Church of Satan on his parents' behalf, which, given that they were strident Roman Catholics, is not the kind of Mm -hmm. thing you're meant to do. He was thrown out of the very expensive private school that he'd been sent to, and then he was thrown out of the public school he was sent to afterwards because he broke into a rival's house and caused thousands of dollars of damage with a samurai sword. Mm, sounds like a troubled individual. 
Well, such that he was sent to various medical centres and halfway houses to have his mental health assessed and eventually ran away to L.A. in the summer of 1982. I should point out he grew up in Florida. Florida might actually explain an awful lot of the psyche of Matthew Tripp here. Uh, Apologies to our listeners in Florida. I know we have at least one. So in 1983, having just arrived, well, having been in L.A. for about half a year, he's basically hanging around a whole bunch of bars. And one day at a bar called The Troubadour, he bumps into Mick Mars of Motley Crue fame. Now, Motley Crue isn't famous at this point. They're basically a band which is about to start having its really, really big first hit with their first album, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But Mick Mars has an issue because... Their bass guitarist, Nicky Six, has been injured in a car crash, and they need a replacement immediately because they need someone to go on tour with them. So Matthew Tripp is bundled up into a car, and they go together to meet Doug Thaler and Doc McGee, who were the band's co-managers at the time. And Tripp auditions for the role of bassist of Motley Crue. He... Auditions, he sits outside for half an hour or so, and eventually they call him back in and say, look, we've got a contract ready. We need you to sign it now. We're going on tour almost immediately. So he goes to sign the contract under his own name, at which point Doc McGee goes, no, no, you need to sign your name as Nikki Six. Right, which, of course, is not the name of the real Nikki Six either. No, so and actually, we'll, we'll, we'll be coming back mm. to this nomenclature stuff with Doc McGee's latter career towards the end of this. Because I say, Doc McGee actually probably ends up being the second most interesting person in the sto- mm. story. So, it having like we've got a bit of a bit of a Doctor Who sort of a James Bond situation going on. Let's just keep the keep the character, but recast him. Oh, believe you me, that is a major point of what we're going to talk about Doc McGee towards the end, because he's also involved in managing a band that does that now. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll leave that to the end. In fact, actually, yeah. can you guess which band Doc McGee manages now? Oh, band, band, you say. And I remember, this is a manager of, the 19, of a 1980s hair metal band. What kind of band mm. do you think that Doc McGee might be oh. managing in this day and age? Maroon 5. Interesting choice. Completely mm. wrong. Good. So Nikki, uh, so the new Nikki Six, a.k.a. Matthew Tripp, I don't know why I've just gone a, also known as, I mean actually known as, actually known Tripp, as yeah. goes to live with Tommy Lee and starts the process of memorizing the real Nikki Six's life. So basically Matthew Tripp sits down and goes, look, I need to pretend to be Nikki Six. Who is Nikki Six? Nikki Six is the drug-taking, heavy-drinking Frank Farana. I'm now going to memorize this person's life so that I can pretend to be this person when being in- interviewed. So he is pretending to be Nikki Six, who, of course, is the alter ego of one Frank Farana. He is not meant to ever reveal that he is, in fact, Matthew Tripp and replacing Frank Farana. Now, this story is a little bit confusing here because at this stage, according to Matthew Tripp, there was no chance of Frank Farana ever coming back to the band. They really thought they had lost their basis for good. So why exactly a band which hasn't made it big at this point needs to maintain the illusion of a basis being someone else? I don't know, but this is the story he tells. Now, as they're getting ready to go on tour, they are also getting ready to record the album Shout With The Devil, which is actually not the name of the album is released because Tripp, being a Satanist, suggests that they should change the name to the much more appropriate Shout At The Devil instead. He also claims that they were that their pen, pentagram was upside down, so he directed that they should adjust their imagery to make the pentagram look more satanically correct. And Tripp claims to have written songs like Knock 'em Dead and Looks That Kill. So he's involved in not just touring with the band, playing bass guitar, he's also writing songs for the album that's going to make them big and famous and also is responsible for writing several songs on that 
on that album. So Shout at the Devil gets released. It's a remarkable success, despite the fact that it got terrible reviews at the time. So it's one of those classic cases of reviewers hated it and the public loved it, to the point where Motley Crue gets to go on tour with Ozzy Osbourne. Ozzy Osbourne, for some reason, cannot stand Matthew Tripp. He does not get on with Matthew Tripp at all. Specifically this, Matthew Tripp, not just the not the band as a whole. From the sounds of it, it was just Matthew Tripp mm. that Ozzy Osbourne had no particular love for. And this led to Tripp trashing several hotel rooms on tour, which led him to being fired on the amazing date of April 1st. <laughs> And yet it was no prank. No, so he thought it was a prank. And then when Doc McGee went, no, actually, you are fired, you're causing issues, he gets let go, and he gets let go in part because he's causing issues for the band, but also in part because Frank Farana has recovered from his injuries from the car crash and is able to return back to playing the role of Nikki Six. So they no longer need Matthew Tripp. They've got the original. So, any questions thus far? Right, so you said a second ago that this is this is Matthew Tripp telling the story. So is, is this entirely his version of events so far? Yes, it right. is, yes. Okay, so I the can, band... I, I can sense suspicion in your voice already. Yeah, and, and the band denies this completely, do they? They say it's been Nikki Six has, has always been Nikki Six. Yes. Right, okay. Well, I mean, yes, given the history you painted, uh, the, the picture you've painted of this guy with his, with his history, I, I, I have doubts. I'll, I'll, I'll say that at this point. And you are allowed to have doubts. It is an unusual story. So Tripp returns back home to Tampa in Florida and then starts a criminal spree. This leads to rumours that Nikki Six is in town and up to antics. Matthew Tripp gets arrested. He's put into jail. He tries to get legal representation from the band, but the band is currently in Europe touring and nothing basically happens. So Tripp spends some time in Chucky. Theatre of Pain, the follow-up album to Shout at the Devil, gets released about a year later. And Tripp claims he also was responsible for writing some of the songs on that album at the request of Doc McGee after he's been let go of the band. So Doc mm-hmm. McGee recognises that Matthew Tripp was responsible for some of the hits on the first album and asked Tripp to contribute material to the new album. Whilst he's technically being fired, he's promised royalties by the band, but nothing happens. So he starts telling people about his time in 1983-1984, in where for one year... He was the basis of Motley Crue, but given his time in prison and the fact he's now in rehab for drug use, no one really believes him. Mm. And yet the fact that we're hearing his story, I assume, means somebody listened to him at least. Well, yes. So here's the interesting wrinkle in the story. So he gets out of rehab, he tries to clean himself up, and he hires a private investigator by the name of Jerry Oglesby. He gets a team together, even to the point of getting a manager for a resurgent musical career. And together, they shop the story of Matthew Tripp being Nikki Six for a year to the music magazine Kerrang! Exclamation mark! Just uh, you, 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 yeah. It was actually a fairly big music it was, publication. Wasn't it was a British? I thought it was a British one. Wasn't it? I think it was a transatlantic Maybe. publication. I don't know. Yeah, I think that had offices both in the UK and the US, and I think we probably got the more British-focused version of Kerrang. Mm. But I think it was one of those publications. It kind of existed on both sides of the pond as our friends in the Northern Hemisphere say. So that just sounds like a really squeaky sh- uh, shopping tro- tro- trolley over the, yeah. say, over the radio. Uh, that's really actually quite quite disconcerting. It's, it's almost if I'm expecting Anna to hove interview pushing a shopping trolley through your office. 
that'll get edited out. So yeah, so they show up the story to Kerrang and Kerrang publish it. So the story broke on March the 12th, 1988, which is kind of at the height of Motley Crue's fame. Although that's kind of an odd sentence to make because Motley Crue was one of those bands that had an initial surge of fame in the 1980s. And then they were kind of rediscovered in the 90s and 2000s and kind of had a new resurgence of fame. So they've kind of, they've waxed and waned. They've never been unpopular, but they've had moments of extreme popularity mm. over the years. Although I and should point Tommy out... And Tommy Lee married Pamela Anderson and there was all the, all the all the celebrity business with them and what have you, yeah. See, the, on, the only thing I care about Pamela Anderson is the brilliant film Barb Wire which is just a, a remake yeah, of Casablanca. Mm. It's kind of astounding. It's almost a shot-for-shot shot remake of Casablanca. But in the future with... Guns. Yeah, and Timura Morrison. Yeah. Mm. I really mm. should re-watch Barb Wire. It's been a while. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I was about to point out, 1980s fame, though, that's, you know, that's the really, really excessive fame. Let me tell you about a few of the things that happened in 1988 when Motley Crue were at the height of their fame. Is it this is was, one of those things, me turning 12 years old? Because that I happened mean, in 1998. I, did, I wasn't aware that it affected Motley Crue, but it may have. Well, I mean, that might have been the thing that stopped Nikki Six's heart, although it is a, it's it's more likely to be the case that he took enough heroin for his heart right. to literally stop mm-hmm. and it was one of the things that happened in 1988 to Motley Crue and this was basically the point where Nikki Six was going I should probably give up the drugs this is probably not good for me at all uh, Vince Neil who was this singer had the shadow of a vehicular manslaughter conviction hanging oh over him after a drunken car crash which killed his passenger Hanoi Rocks drummer Razzle. Mick Mars was suffering from a debilitating form of arthritis that was slowly fusing his spine, and the band had recently left Japan in disgrace after a bottle of whiskey was hurled at a passenger's head on a bullet train, which also caused them to cancel their European tour because formerly... There was too much snow on the roof of the planned London venue. That was the excuse they used for cancelling the tour outright. We think the roof is going to collapse because it snowed too much. It was actually cancelled because the management of the band were concerned that due to the excessive drug and alcohol use by band members, if they went to Europe, several of the band members would die due to drug overdoses or alcohol poisoning. Right. Apparently they could they could not be controlled at all. Mm, what goes on tour stays on tour, especially if you're dead. Yeah, what goes on tour comes back comes back in a coffin. It mm. sounds like in this particular mm. case. And actually, something which and we'll talk as I, I keep saying, we'll talk more about this at the end of the episode. Even their manager Doc McGee was about to get in a whole load of trouble because McGee was about to plead guilty to being part of a gang that had smuggled in 29,000 pounds of marijuana into South Carolina. Mm-hmm. South so Carolina apparently, marijuana. Someone's apparently do it. being co-manager of Motley Crue wasn't making him enough money. He decided that running a criminal syndicate for smuggling drugs into the American South was also a really good idea. Mm-hmm. So this is the state of Motley Crue when yeah. the story breaks in 1988. So, yeah, as we say, Matthew Tripp and Jerry Oglesby shops the story to Kerrang. The people at Kerrang find the story somewhat plausible. And the rationale behind the plausibility of what was, sorry, the rationale as to why they found the story plausible was that the dossier of information that was provided to Kerrang contained an awful lot of photos, some of which were not photos in kind of public archives. They appeared to be photos that had been taken on tour. And they showed that the physique of Nikki Six changes in 1983, and then changes again sometime in 1984. 
Nikki Sixx's eye colour appears to change during this time. So I believe that Frank Ferreira had blue eyes and Matthew Tripp had green eyes. I actually might be getting that round the wrong way. And so people notice the eye colour seems to be ever so slightly different in different shots. Now, the people at Kerrang were aware that this was not necessarily proof positive that Matthew Tripp's story was correct, so they published the story more of that of a wronged man rather than a factual account of, did you know that Nikki Six was replaced for one year by this guy called Matthew Tripp? And in part, it was because there were there was difficulties back in 1988 for doing fact-checking. They couldn't just go to Wikipedia to find mm. out what the real names of band me- members were. That kind of information wasn't freely available at the time. And it was actually quite difficult to get details about where bands were at particular points in time. So Tripp would allege that an event occurred on tour at a particular place or a particular time, and the people at Kerrang! were going, well, we we literally can't check that because there's we don't have any archival material to tell us where the band was. And we probably can't go to Motley Crue and go, uh, by the way, someone's claiming that he replaced Nikki Six as bassist back in 1983. Could you tell us... Which venues did you play on March 12th, 1983? Really help our story to verify this particular claim. So they admitted at the time, this is actually mostly the admission of John Hossam, who was the main writer of the story, that they couldn't fact check some of these claims, but they found the story plausible enough that they were willing to go to print. And a issue which caused issue forgive the pun, with Motley Crue, who were not very happy that there was a story in a popular music magazine that alleged that Nikki Six wasn't Nikki Six for at least one year. Mm. Yeah, I, I meant to ask before whether or not it was the case that Nikki Six had been in a car accident or not, but then I guess if, if, if he'd received medical treatment or whatever, it would have been under his real name, and so that would probably be something that would have been difficult to verify as well. Do we know? So, I mean, so it does ever... seem that Frank Ferrana was in a car accident at some point. It just isn't quite clear that we know exactly when the dates of that car accident was. Now, at the same time the Kerrang! story gets published, Tripp and Oglesby file a lawsuit a law a law and a lawsuit against not Motley Crue, but Doc McGee. So basically, they sue Doc McGee over the contract that Doc McGee forced Matthew Tripp to sign, on the argument being that if Matthew Tripp had been allowed to sign the contract under his own name, this would not be up for dispute, so they sue McGee. The case is thrown out after the deposition, so the case goes absolutely nowhere. Is that because they weren't able to produce this contract, or...? So the reason why the case gets thrown out turns out to be a technicality. So Oglesby and Tripp are suing in Florida. The contract was signed in California. The statute of limitations for contracts in California is two years, while the statute of limitations for contracts in Florida is four it turns out that if they'd filed the suit in California, they would have got nowhere because the contract is too old. And basically, Motley Crue's management went, well, actually, the the jurisdiction for this particular event should be occurring in California. The statute of limitations has run out there. There is no case to answer. And the judge went, yep, well, actually, that appears to be factually correct. So we don't need to test this hypothesis in court at all. The statute of limitations applies here. There is no case to answer. So on one level, you might go, the case was thrown out. That sounds pretty bad, but it was thrown out on a technicality. No one ever got their day in court. Right. Was that the end of it, or is there more to come? Well, we should probably talk. So at this stage, how plausible do you think this theory is? It's certainly plausible. Once again, the guy's history of of erratic behaviour... 
does cast perhaps a little bit of doubt on it, but I mean, it certainly it, it's, it certainly doesn't seem impossible. It certainly doesn't seem completely unthinkable. I mean, as you say, it would be a little bit weird if they thought the original Nikki Six was out for good. Why would they feel the need for deception? Why not just say he'd be, he's been replaced? But um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's 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 not unthinkable that such a thing could have happened. I suppose. Well, let's talk about the evidence for the hypothesis then. Mm. So. One of the reasons why people like the publishers of Kerrang! found the story plausible was that Tripp seemed to know stories about Motley Crow that were not public knowledge until much, much later. So there was a 2006 book called The Dirt, which is a kind of big history of Motley Crow. And this book was the revelation of a whole bunch of stories which Tripp seemed to know about in advance in 1980. 88. So he knew a story about Vince Neil, for example, punching out a Marine at the Troubadour well before anyone else knew about it. So if Tripp knew about it, Tripp had to have either witnessed it or heard it firsthand from someone who was there because it was not public knowledge at the time. He knew odd facts like McMahon's favorite ice cream flavor and probably more interesting he knew the name of the directors of music videos. Now, back in the 1980s, music video directors weren't kind of the famous people we associate with them now. They were simply, you know, jobbing for hire Mm. directors. And so knowing information like that was actually kind of unusual because they were usually people who worked for, for a day and moved on. Trip knowing about these things was kind of the kind of thing that people went how would you know this unless you were spending time with the band there were questions about a where he got all the photos of and b some of those photos really did seem to show nikki six with a very different physique in 1983 compared to 1982 and 1984 Although, of course, we've talked an awful lot about photos and physiques mm. in this podcast, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, it is It is quite surprising what lighting can do and what difference, different focal length on lenses and what have you can do. And it's very easy to be selective as well and um, sort of pick out the one where it's, it's, I mean, like I was saying before about the Melania Trump stuff, people would, would point at a photo from... Um, one of her appearances, one of her public appearances with Trump and say, look, that's obviously not her. But then that was an official press photo of which there were dozens, if not hundreds more. And, you know, it's only that one that they've seized on because it was it was showing them what they wanted to see. So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's not proof positive. Probably more interesting, both Trip and Nikki Six have exactly the same tattoos. Hmm. And what's interesting is that they're very ornate tattoos, and we, 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 we know the story of where Nikki Six got, got them from. Matthew Tripp, if the rest of his life story is correct, is someone who never earned large sums of money, never had any particular wealth. In fact, he has expensive-looking matching tattoos to Nikki Six. If he wasn't masquerading as Nikki Six for a year, there was a very big question of, where did you get the tattoos? And probably more importantly, how did you afford to get the tattoos? Hmm. And how did you get them so close to his? What 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 would what could you have used for ref, uh, for reference if you were it's, 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 Yeah, it's not like the modern era where we can get a high definition photo downloaded hmm. from the internet and go copy that tattoo. You'd be going to magazine scans of photos and taking a pixelated image going, uh, can you make that look much better than the image I've provided you with? Mm. Another interesting factor here. So Matthew Tripp, as mentioned before, was a Satanist. So he was a member of the Church of Satan. He was also a member of the Temple of Set, which was a fairly exclusive offshoot of the Church of Satan, which was run by Michael Aquino. To belong to the Temple of Set, you kind of had to be A, a celebrity, and B, have some degree of disposable income. And Alkino, 
whose name I am completely mispronouncing here, confirmed that Tripp joined the Temple of Set sometime about 1982-1983 and confirmed much of Tripp's story about his time being in Motley Crue because it's the time that he meets Tripp and asks him to join the temple. Okay, well, that's something then. That's 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 corroboration, I suppose, because up until now it's been basically Tripp's, Tripp's word and I guess the word of his manager who has an interest in... And talking up the sordid history of his client. I mean, if you can't trust a Satanist, who can you trust? Well, no, exactly. Is the Church of Satan is that actual Anton LaVey's crowd? Yeah, yeah. Yes, this is, this right. is, this is, so this is not sa- sa- Satanism in the sense of believing in our Lord Satan and the Lord of the Dark, Lucifer, Morningstar, etc., etc. This is basically a form of libertarianism, which really, really likes goat statues. Mm. And and triggering the, not triggering the libs, triggering the conservatives, I think, seem to be... Precisely. And frankly, even though I don't like libertarians, I do actually quite like the way the Church of Satan is always triggering those conservative Christians over in the US. I find it delightful. Mm. So now, now enters into our story a new character, Roger Hemond. Roger Hemond. Roger Hemond. No, so no Roger Hemond hears the story about Nikki Six slash Matthew Tripp sometime in 1987. So this is before the Krang story breaks. Like Mick Mars, Roger Hemond has just lost a bass guitarist and needs a replacement. Apparently in LA, there are bass guitarist accidents happening all the time. So he asked Tripp to join his band called Circor. Now, because of the fame of Matthew Tripp and the claim that he was Nikki Six for a year, they decide to rebrand the band as Six Pack. And they record a three-track demo in Tampa, which does well enough with studio reps to call for a tour. And then Tripp basically ruins things for everyone because he starts acting up. He starts trashing expensive guitars. He trashes hotel rooms. He appears in the recording studio drunk. Basically, he's acting like a rock star and causing issue for a new band as they're trying to get themselves ready. Crucially, according to according to him, and he also seems to have forgotten how to play the songs he claims to have written for Motley Crue. He has to be taught the songs he said he originally wrote. Mm. So, I mean, is there? It sounds like there could be room for sort of a a, 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 a middle middle ground here, where maybe his story isn't a hundred percent true, but he was some sort of a groupie who hung around with them enough to have been quite. You know, to 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 have some intimate knowledge of them, but wasn't actually in the band like he's like he's claiming to other people. Now that is a hypothesis that several people have put forward. That actually the best way to explain all of the story is that Trip was a groupie with Motley Crue, which would explain why he's got tattoos which match that of Frank Ferrana. Would also explain why he knows all sorts of background details about the the band and the like. The only wrinkle here comes from Roger Hammond. And I quote from an interview he did with Paul Miles on the website Chronological Crew. Hammond claims, I don't know whether or not anything he said was true, but I had seen copyright forms processed by the Library of Congress that had every member of Motley Crue's full real name, aka name and social security number, with the exception of Nikki Six. All it said was Nikki Six and gave a social security number, which I swear to God was the same number on Matthew John Tripp's social security card, which I was holding in my other hand. Mm. Okay, and yeah, again, again, the name thing. So, yeah, I, I kind of don't know what to believe at this stage, to be honest. Well, let me give you some evidence against the hypothesis. So the first problem is Doc McGee meeting Tripp. So Matthew Tripp claims that he meets Doc McGee in 1983 and auditions to be on tour just before Shout at the Devil is released. The problem is Doc McGee did not become the band's co-manager until after that album was released. So 
McGee and Tripp cannot have met at that time. So that's a little bit of a wrinkle. In fact, Doc McGee has always denied ever meeting Matthew Tripp. Uh, I should point out, Matthew Tripp is dead. Doc, Doc McGee is not. So Doc McGee is getting to have the last word here. But he's always denied ever meeting Tripp. And indeed, according to Tripp's story, they can't have met at the time that Tripp claims they met when he became 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 Nikki Six. And I see I'm I'm stammering there. That's actually appropriate because Matthew Tripp had a noticeable stammer and used the technique that many of us with speech disfluency engage in, where you elongate sounds to get words out. Nikki Six, and we've got an awful lot of recordings of him, not just now, but also in the crucial time period of 1983 to 1984, does not have any noticeable stammer or any evidence of speech disfluency. Mm, okay, so now the, 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 the different physique eye colour thingy is uh, starting to look less compelling. Now, Tripp claimed that as he was masquerading as Nikki Six and thus pretending to be Frank Ferrana, he was stoned a lot of the time, and being stoned made his stammer go away. Now, people will also be aware that when I drink, I'm actually less likely to suffer from speech disfluency. So that is possible that that's the case. Tripp also dressed very differently from the incredibly stylish Nikki Six. So people point out that Nikki Six is always dressed to the nines, whilst Tripp seemed to have no fashion sense whatsoever. Although I don't actually know whether that's evidence against the story or not, because presumably when he was Nikki Six, he was being dressed to play that part, mm. as opposed to yeah, having so. to continue to dress that way afterwards. Now, it is true that Nikki Six injured his shoulder in a car accident, but that seems to have happened well after the time that Tripp says he started playing Nikki Six. So according to Nikki Six, that car accident occurs in June 1983, which is after the band had been on tour with Kiss, a tour that Tripp claims he was Nikki Six on. Mm. Okay. I mean, yeah. I, I, I said I don't know what to believe before, and I kind of still don't. Also, and this is this might be a deciding factor here, when Matthew Tripp approaches Oglesby, his private investigator with the story, the initial version of the story is that he didn't replace Nikki Six. Nikki Six replaced him. Okay, well, that, that, that's kind of a different scenario then, entirely, yeah. But he didn't... And a, a scenario that Oglesby did not believe for a second. So Tripp had to change his story again, and that persuaded Oglesby that maybe Tripp was being hyperbolic, but maybe there was, some, there was something more to the story nonetheless. Mm. Okay, well, is there more? This sounds like we're reaching reaching a conclusion. Well, I mean, the only other thing, so along with the fact he changed his story to Oglesby, he also at one stage claimed that he was ditched by the band because he got arrested and served some time in prison for a robbery he claims he was set up for. This, of course, actually conflicts with the other story he told, that basically, because of the problems between him and Ozzy Osbourne in the trash hotel rooms, he was let go. So he had two not necessarily contradicting stories about why he was released from the band. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as you tell the story, it sounds to me like someone who's maybe a bit of a fantasist who was close enough to the band to get a bunch of, you know, to to, to know a bunch of stuff that the, the ordinary person on the street might not know, but who has invented a story that's put him in a more prominent position than he actually was. That's... That's my that's my take on it, but yeah, like I say, there, there seem to be there, se- there seems to be plenty uh, plenty of evidence in either direction. So now, now let's talk a little bit about Doc McGee, because mm. Doc McGee is kind of is a is a little wrinkle in the story. Now we've I don't think we've actually talked about this. Did you ever listen to the podcast Winds of Change? 
Nope. So wouldn't have changed the podcast that basically covers over a period of time the story of the song Winds of Change by the Scorpions and whether or not it was part of an elaborate American plot to bring liberty to the uh, to communist parts of the communist bloc of Eastern and Western Europe. So one of the storylines in Wind of Change was that the Scorpions were basically either set up or working for the CIA to produce pro-capitalist, anti-communist propaganda to bring about the fall of you know, the Ber- Berlin Wall and like, even though we all know David Hasselhoff is the real reason why Obviously. the Berlin Wall fell. Yeah. Doc McGee appears in the story because, as mentioned previously, Doc McGee is involved in a massive drug smuggling mm. claim. And yet, for some reason, he re- he gets a very very modest sense, uh, sentence. I believe it was it was house arrest for about six months, as opposed to you know a decade or so in prison, which has always raised a lot of questions. And indeed, one of the things he did after he was basically serving his time was he set up a very elaborate bunch of hair meddlers, including the Scorpions, to go over to places like Russia and Eastern Europe to perform concerts. And certain conspiracy theorists of a particular stripe have always maintained that Doc McGee was basically acting for the CIA, that he made a deal to avoid a prison sentence by serving his country, by spreading capitalism to Russia and Eastern Europe, which would then fit in quite nicely with the idea that as he's kind of managing the scorpions at that time, winds of change kind of fits into that particular story. But also, Doc McGee is the current manager of the band KISS. And Kiss, famously, is a band where A, everyone dresses up and plays a role, and B, it's one of the few bands where everyone is known by their stage persona, and people have been replaced so that band members, either they die or they retire, but that's never announced because the character maintains themselves. And not just that, there have also been situations where people have come back to play the same characters. They leave the band, get replaced, and then they come back and take over that character again. So Doc McGee has a history of managing a band where people pretend to be who they aren't and only go by their nom de plume rather than by their real name. Kind of like the Wiggles or the Sugar Babes, although they didn't actually say they were the same people, were they? They just had a complete... Uh, revolving, revolving. Which is ironic, system. given that one of the one of the Sugar Babes' most famous songs is about you know spin, it was about mm, spinning round, things around. Yes. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. And indeed, the, the the Sugar Babes ended up actually doing the whole Ship of Theseus thing, didn't they? Because the entire lineup was replaced, and then the three original members of the Sugar Babes started a new band, but couldn't call themselves the Sugar Babes, even though they were the original Sugar Babes. It was very confusing. Mm, mm. Best best ship of Theseus example uh, before WandaVision came along, actually. Well, you know, philosophers have got to find more recent examples. We can't just rely on things from 3,000 years ago. Well, exactly. Anyway, so so, so Kiss was the band that I failed to guess before. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. So I thought, I, I thought you Gene were going Simpson for something more and contemporary. And normally long tongue. Mm, mm. Right. Well, I mean, that's if, – if, if you'd – Told me um, when, like last week, when we were talking about topics, that you were going to speak to me about Motley Crue for nearly an hour. I probably wouldn't have been interested, and yet, quite an interesting story involving Motley Crue. Indeed. So yes, mm. there you go. The Motley Crue story of the Nikki Six who wasn't, mm. and we can put that as a question because either it was because it may not have been the uh, the Nikki Six who wasn't, or maybe it was the Nikki Six who wasn't. Mm. Yes, oh, very good. My only regret is that when you started talking about celebrity doppelgangers, I didn't use the opportunity to talk about the 1996 film Doppelganger starring Drew Barrymore, which to this day has the, 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 the most bizarre ending of any film I've ever seen. 
God, it's been a while since I've watched that. It has, yeah. I hunted down, I, I, I hunted down the ending on YouTube, which was available just as, as a clip, just that section of the film, just to convince myself I hadn't dreamed it. But it's, if you haven't seen, listeners, the film Doppelganger, featuring Drew Barrymore, it's, I want to say worth a watch. I don't know if that's true, but it's, it's an experience you will not forget in a hurry. You'll think you will. You think you will up until about 20 minutes before the end, and then um, th- then it takes a swerve, is all I'll say. Yes, I'd actually forgotten the ending to Doppelganger, but now now it's flashing back. Yes, oh, that's right. It really is very bizarre. Mm, mm. Anyway, well, uh, uh, kudos to you on another, uh, another thoroughly satisfying What the Conspiracy episode. Um, so that may be the end of this, but of course we have a bonus episode to go and record now for our beloved patrons, um, where we have a few things to talk about, a few sort of current events. We've had wackiness going on, um, COVID-related wackiness with Jacinda Ardern being heckled in Northland by someone of slightly uh, uh, dubious pedigree. Um, QAnon business. Uh, the, uh, apart from the wackiness, that there was, what, what was the big meeting the big, the big event in the states recently that the QAnon people were all enthusing about. Oh, there was there was going to be something in Dallas from memory. Dallas, right? Yeah. So they, they've been getting up. They're, they're, there's we've got some QAnon stuff going on in Dallas, but some sort of QAnon stuff apparently going on in New Zealand um, that involves the Italians. Uh, mm. Mm. And then a little bit more um, talk talk about the Pandora. Have we mentioned? We must have mentioned the Pandora Papers. We did the. I think we have. We did a whole episode on the Panama ones, but you know, yeah, you're right. There's an interesting development on the Pandora Papers that ties into some of the um, some of the sort of art world hobby lobby art fraud stuff that we've talked about before. So if you'd like to hear about all of those, maybe maybe in the patron bonus ep- uh, episode, I will actually describe what happens specifically in the end of the movie Doppelganger for those of you who don't want to look it up by yourselves. Maybe that can be. That 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 that's, oh, that, yes. that could be our incentive uh, for anyone who isn't currently a patron, but is a bit of sort of teetering on the edge. Anyway, if if you are a patron teetering on the edge of, of anything, really, first of all, get yourself in a in a slightly safer and more stable position. Second of all, go to patreon.com uh, and look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy and sign yourselves up. Um, on the other hand, if you're quite happy where you are, precarious or otherwise, uh, that's fine because you, you listen to our podcast and you're our audience, and that's just peachy. Peachy. So, mm, so I don't I don't think we have anything more to say. Do we have anything more to say? We do not. I think no. it's time to close out with a classic Motley Crew quote. Um, I don't I don't actually know. Uh, he's the one who called you call him Doctor Feelgood. He's the one who makes you feel. All right, something I don't even know. I, it's a song that I have heard of, and that's the best you can I, I can give at this point. Well, I'm off to stop my heart with a very large amount of heroin. Excellent. And goodbye. I, I mean, I should, Motley Crue must have said goodbye at some stage. There we go. That can be my quote. Goodbye. Imagine though, if they're a band that has never said goodbye. Mm, give them an ear of rock rock star mystique, I suppose. But. Mm. Goodbye. Toodles. You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.